is Liz Williams of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast that explores the intersection of museums and cuisine. We're here today with Mark Norman. Mark is my son, and he's also a comedian living in New York. He isn't an expert in either museums or food, but he's probably an expert on me since he is my child. Welcome, Mark. So, since we're talking about food and museums, why don't you talk about what it was like when you learned that I was interested in opening a food museum? Mm, I guess I was in high school. It was in about 2003. Oh, wow. So. Yeah, so I guess I was done. I was in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, you were a lawyer, and you didn't like it, and I remember that, and I remember asking you if you ever had a guy tell you he was guilty, and you still had to defend him, and you said, oh, yeah, and that blew my mind. So you didn't like that, but we all knew you liked food, and you were always cooking and trying new stuff and million cookbooks and all that, so then when you said food museum, nobody knew what that was. That was a new term. And then, you know, you think of museum, you think of a big, like an African mask or a David statue or some Monet, but you don't think of food, so nobody knew what the hell you were talking about. You know, does it, is it a bowl of, of, of noodles from ancient China? Or is it, you know, is it old recipes? We didn't know, I didn't know what it was. And so, were you curious enough to ask, or did you just kind of say, well, as soon as it opens, I'll see? No, I think I asked, and then you told me it's going to be New Orleans, Southern cooking, you know, the how this got started, and the cultural, blah, 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 so that kind of helped. And then, I couldn't believe it when it opened. I remember you were looking on Jackson Avenue for a place, and then that kind of fell through, and then you found the place, and the... Riverwalk, river yeah, and uh, that was a big deal. Just having a place made it seem so much more official. That's always the hard part when you're getting started because you tell people about your idea, mm-hmm. and it's just an idea, and you're asking for money, you're asking people to give you artifacts, mm-hmm. and all of it is just an idea. Yeah, but I think that's also an it's also an idea that no one knew what it was. So not only is it an idea, but it's an idea that's weird and foreign and new. And that's kind of like how stand-up was. Because you go, oh, I want to be a stand-up, and people, you can't touch it. You know, you just go, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, go tell your jokes into a microphone that nobody cares about. But then I feel like you getting a place was the same as me getting a TV credit. Like, oh, this is a thing. This is real. You had validation. Yeah. So once you had the place, and then I remember you had the uh, the big bar was a big hit. That was a really special thing that somebody decided that that bar that had been in their family's restaurant for years and years, they gave it to us. Yeah, and it was huge and old and pretty and all that. And then you got that, when you once you got that liquor room, Remember that old room with all the liquors and the little mini bottles? The Museum of the American Cocktail. That was so impressive. And we were like, everybody was like, wow, this is really coming together. And then you had the big 
sugar, domino sugar thing, the exhibit and all that, and the interactive stuff with the TVs and computers in the back and all that, so it's it pretty cool, and it was, you know, in a, a touristy area, and, uh, you know, it's in the paper, it's in the magazines and all that, so yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah, we were, we were lucky because I think we kind of read, rode the, um, the crest of the food wave mm -hmm. because it was the beginnings of the Food Network and it was um, a time when people were really talking about food. Mm -hmm. Even though they were talking about eating food and yeah. having it be delicious and special and all of that sort of thing. It did make people feel that this was a worthy topic for a museum. Right. Yeah, it's weird how you eat food every day, and it's you need it to live. But yet, it it just became a craze recently, kind of. You think it'd be a craze immediately, because some people I feel like the French had a food they were obsessed, but other people just food is food, you know. It's weird that it took so long to become a a big deal. Like you, a, you mean here in America? Yeah, just like it's, we need food, to eat cooked food, your people are obsessed with food, there's foodies, but there was no term foodie in the 80s, was there? No. Yeah, so it's weird that it took so long, it was right there, you know? It's really interesting if you go to natural history museums and places like that, they'll talk about early yeah, search for foods, mortar and like stuff, that. And right? All that. But then later, there's really not a whole lot that people talk about. And the problem with food is that it's so ephemeral. I mean, obviously, you eat it, so it's gone. Mm -hmm. And we haven't really accumulated the um, the things that people cooked with. I think archaeologists have found early things that people cooked with. But once we sort of had um, written histories um, and then the society built itself on top of itself mm -hmm. so that you have a 12th century building that's been remodeled in the 13th century and then fixed again in the 14th century, there's no place where all this stuff is discarded where you could dig it up now mm. ah, because yeah, right, it's right. all in that, that building. It just You can't take down the building to get underneath it to find mm. out what's been discarded. Mm -hmm. And so if you haven't collected it because you think it's important historically, the way people have collected paintings mm -hmm. or they've collected works of art or whatever, you don't have access to them unless somebody has it, you know, by accident somehow. Well, you have the writing. That's all you have is the recipes and all that. Right. You have the recipes, but even those are just notations. Mm -hmm. Now, today we write recipes with with a lot of accuracy, and we'll say you use a pinch of this. Nobody says pinch. They say a quarter of mm -hmm. a teaspoon or whatever so that there's some kind of precision about yeah. what you're telling people. But the early recipes weren't like that. They were just a list of ingredients and basically it says and cook this together mm. and so if you made something and it had a list of spices the amount of spice that you put in it might be very different from what the amount of spice that somebody else put in it because it wouldn't tell you oh yeah 
the proportions or anything like that. That's why they always say, like, Grandma made it or whatever, because she made it some weird way that you got used to, and now you like it better. Right. And, I mean, my grandmother um, had a cup, because she wouldn't throw anything away, she had a cup that the, the handle had come off of, mm. but she didn't want to throw it away, so she used it as her measuring cup to measure flour. Mm -hmm. So everything that she did was based on that measuring cup, which has nothing to do with a standard mm. measuring cup. It was just her measuring cup. Just eyeballing? She didn't have numbers on it. No, it was just you know a half of this cup. Well, mm -hmm. she just looked at it and decided that's about a half of this cup. Mm. Or it's three of these cups or whatever, but it's not going to be the same as using three standard cups mm -hmm. because who knows how many ounces there were in her cup. Yeah, that's weird. But that's what the way people cooked. They mm -hmm. cooked much so, more by feel, and today we're much more dependent on these recipes that are so precise. Mm -hmm. so, so, so things must have tasted so different from other things then. But you also learned how to cook from someone else. Ah. So you cooked with them. And so you learned the way it felt, the way it smelled. You saw how much somebody put in. Mm -hmm. And you, you, would be, you would be cooking in a different way. Yeah. Also weird that it feels like there was so much more fat, sugar, salt. Everything was in there before. And yet people were more healthy somehow. Well, I don't know if they were really more healthy, but they were definitely... They were definitely thinner. Thinner. But that's because they did so much more physical activity. Plus, ah. I don't think that there was quite as much food. So, you like know... Like a portion, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if you were talking about somebody who was um, eating too much, and so gluttony was one of the sins... I mean, this was not a sin that many people were worried about because they didn't have access to the kind of food that we have today. Yeah. And so, you know, getting an orange was some special thing because you never, you never could get one. If yeah. you lived in England or something, it was too cold to grow oranges. Mm. And so to have an orange meant that you had the money to import that mm. and it was very expensive and so somebody could give you an orange you probably remember stories like for christmas you got an orange and it wow. was like a really big deal that's a that's a bummer <laughs> you're hoping for a nintendo when you get an orange but it was you know different time i heard a pineapple was uh like a real luxurious item yes it was some it was. places have their symbol is a pineapple meaning like this is a rich place and there was hospitality there mm -hmm. and whatever. Yeah, pineapples were very um, unusual. But how much more activity? I think it's more portion. Or is it preservatives? Well, I think part of it is portions. Um, if you look at, say, 1950s pans, mm -hmm. and you make a muffin, you make muffins in a pan, a muffin pan from 1950, the, the muffins are small, mm. and that was considered a muffin. That was a portion, you know? Yeah. Today, the muffins are enormous. A huge muffin. And so... Why I think, is that? Why do we get a bigger muffin? 
If we just kept the muffin as standard, wouldn't we be better off? We'd be better off. off. Probably we would. But people keep feeling like more is better. Yeah. So that's what people are looking for, you know. Mm. You used to have a hamburger that was just really pretty small. Mm. And then, you know, we're going to put two patties on it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and we're going to put bacon on it. And we're going to put cheese on mm. it. And we're going to put an egg on it, mm. you know. It's like... And the bun will be pancakes. Yeah, or pancake or something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And now we call a, a, ham, a slider. We, you, that used to be a hamburger. That was a hamburger. And you get, yeah. now you get three of them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean... I, I remember when the Whopper came out. Mm -hmm. That was a huge hamburger. Oh, yeah. Now that's pretty standard. Yeah, that's what people order as their regular burger. But that was like, oh, my God. Who can eat that? Big Mac. Mm -hmm. Big Mac doesn't seem that big anymore. My, when my mother would buy two Whoppers and cut them in half, and everybody got a half of them. <laughs> and that was dinner. Yeah. Well, it's also, you remember the movie Stand By Me? Mm -hmm. Remember the fat kid? He doesn't even look fat anymore. <laughs> he was like the pig, you know, gross, nerd, fat kid. Right. And now he's just like a chunky kid, kind of. Right. right. Yeah, they've done a bunch of like, you know, 1960, a five-foot-tall woman, on average, was this much. And then, then now in, 19, in 2019, it's gone up quite a bit. I also think um, that preservatives make a difference. Mm. I think that preservatives affect your, you know, your gut biome. Yeah, and yeah. That sort of thing. And so um, that makes a difference in your ability to access the food and things mm -hmm. like that. And then I think we have much smaller, in today, say, compared to the 1950s, we have a smaller middle class, mm. so we have more people who have less, and at the same time, we have more cheap food. Uh. So the good food for you, like fresh vegetables and fresh fruit, is actually more expensive right, than it used to right. be. So you're going to use your pennies to get french fries, and mm. you're going to get full. Sure. And so you probably aren't getting the nutrition that you really need and so you actually still feel hungry because your body still craves the vitamins and other things that it didn't get mm -hmm. in its food. Yeah, isn't it weird like in the Renaissance paintings that fat people were the rich ones. Right. And now it's the opposite. It's the opposite, yeah. Now rich people are all puking on purpose. <laughs> well, celebrities I should say. You know, they're all getting uh, plastic surgery and, they, you know, anorexia and all that. And now the poor people are eating at McDonald's. Yeah. It all flipped. So we have an exhibit right now at the museum called 40 Chances. Mm -hmm. And it's all about subsistence farmers around the world. Like the, the man we visited when we went to see Eric in Guinea. Mm -hmm. And... So these are farmers who just make enough for their family. Mm -hmm. They just grow enough for their family. 
and they have about 40 seasons in their lifetimes, which is 40 chances to feed their family. Mm. And that's why it's called 40 Chances. Mm -hmm. And the exhibit is all about hunger in the world and all the various reasons, some of which are, are climate related, but some of them are political, some of them are based on war, mm -hmm. and where people cut other people off from food as a, a way to um, uh, make them unable to fight and they'll die of starvation and whatever. And yeah. so it becomes a tool of war. Anyway, it's a really interesting exhibit. And it doesn't talk about the largesse of what we have today. It talks about places where there isn't enough. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting. Yeah. But they say, that is, that's crazy, but they say that we have less poor people than we've ever had in on the you know, on the planet. Not, you know, still poor people, but that's, that's something. That's good news. Yeah. <laughs> so, when you were growing up, how interested were you in food, and how interested are you in it now? Well, you know, growing up, not I didn't really think about it, but I remember you made a point. We never had soda in the house, really. You had, a, you had diet stuff. You had like a diet root beer. But we never really had soda. And we never really had a lot of junk food. And you would always make something. Uh, and, you know, you I was eating for snacks. You would, I'd be like, I want a snack. And you would make a tomato. And you'd cut up a tomato with a little bit of dressing. Which I was into. But no one else did that. You know, kids have Doritos or... Uh, Oreos or something like that and uh, so that was weird did your friends think it was weird? I think so yeah and then we, they would always come over and see like they would look in the fridge and there'd be an old chicken just the bones and they're like why would you have just bones? why did you gotta throw that out? and I'm, then you were like well I'm gonna cook with it so they were like well what's that about? so that was always uh different for most people. I don't think people saw a snack, you know, it was the 90s, everybody was eating pizza and uh, Chinese food and, you know, buffalo wings and fried chicken. So, I guess it was good because, you know, I know kids who grew up, didn't have an avocado until they were 21. And uh, so I was glad I had all that. And I have a weird, way weirder palate than most comedians I know. Because, you know, they grew up in the burbs and they eat like the same as a eight-year-old they're they kind of hit a ceiling at eight like an eight-year-old birthday party food you know it's like <laughs> burger hot dog chicken their big their big uh splurge is like a maybe a chicken parm but that's still a fried chicken cutlet with with marinara uh -huh. but to them that's like hey we're uh that's me getting exotic you know and now i think it's catching up to a lot of people you know you think people are they're starting to put on weight, or they're starting to feel unhealthy. I think they're feeling unhealthy, or a doctor was like, "You gotta get a piece of lettuce in you at some point." Yeah. So there's all that going on. But I, you know, it was cool growing up and see, what was it? Chicken carbonara. Carbonara. Car was that it? Pasta carbonara. You just said it earlier. That was pasta carbonara. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anybody was. It was zucchini. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody was eating that. 
so it was good. A lot of turkey stew, turkey soup. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So. Did uh, you have a favorite? Uh. I guess I liked that chicken soup you would make. That was good. Um. And you would just remember for breakfast. Sometimes I would eat boiled crawfish. <laughs> So most people are eating cinnamon toast crunch, and I got a, I got a newspaper out and smelly shellfish before school. Uh, or you would make a cheese tortilla. I remember. Yeah, we would make uh, quesadillas. Yeah, which was a big. That was a good one because it was quick and you could walk around with it. Right. But, Dip it uh, in your salsa. Yeah. But yeah. And then Dad had his weird foods where he would eat brown rice, a hamburger patty, and then popcorn, <laughs> and then <laughs> almonds or something. But even, you know, you go back to the house now for whatever reason, for some vacation or some visit, and it's always something exotic. Yeah, I'm probably more exotic now because mm-hmm. more ingredients are available. Right. So, I. Uh, if I see something that I'm not familiar with, I always buy it. Yeah. Just to try it. But did you? Because I feel like we're all we all know more about health now. But did you know that a lot of that stuff was unhealthy that mm-hmm. other people were eating? Yes. Because I, I don't think people knew. I remember telling my friend like it's a lot of pizza, and he was like, "Well, it's I got tomato sauce. That's tomato. I got cheese, so that's dairy. I got bread, the crust, so that's you know fiber or whatever." And I was like, oh, that's pretty good. And he's like, you put a pepperoni on there, and now I got the meat. So it's all the four food groups. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, I, I grew up eating because my mother had her Italian background. Everything was from scratch. My grandmother, she made her own mayonnaise. She made her own mustard. Wow. She made everything from scratch. And she made the pasta, or if she didn't make it, she knew who made it. Mm. And she got her bread from a certain place. And so she thought that it was really important that everything be fresh. You start with fresh, and then you make it yourself. That's and, a full-time job. Oh, yeah, it really was. But she, she thought that if you ate something that had stabilizers in it, and it had... Um, other kinds of preservatives and whatever that it couldn't be good for you Mm -hmm. and so it was better to make a little bit of mayonnaise that you ate until it was gone and Mm. then make it again than to have a big jar of it and if she was going to make if you were going to have peanut butter she wanted you to have some peanut butter that you ground you know, and not that has sugar in it and mm-hmm. um, other kinds of fats to make it stay solid. So if you didn't, if you were craving a PB and J and you didn't have any made peanut butter, you just didn't eat a peanut butter sandwich, yeah. or you had to go out or and make to, it. And yeah. by the time you make it, now that three days have gone by and you don't even want one. <laughs> you know? Well, it's kind of like if you were out of peanut butter and you didn't have any. So just but I can just go to the store. Yeah. And today, fortunately, you can get natural peanut butter in yeah, the store. Yeah. That's 
got that oil on the top right. always. And you have to kind of stir it around. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the, that oil and stirring is a big deal. People are like, I won't even do that. I don't want to stir it, let alone grind it and make it a paste. But there are a lot of stores now, especially at a place like Whole Foods or whatever, you can grind it yourself right into a little oh, really? container. And you can just have a small amount and you can use it before it separates. Mm. And so you don't even have to stir it in the oil. Mm -hmm. So do you get annoyed when people say, because I... Ideally, would you want to cook all day? Not all day, but like, you know, would you enjoy spending the day in the kitchen, you know, uh, if you had like state-of-the-art everything, all the access to all the fresh ingredients, would that be fun? Yeah. <laughs> so isn't it weird when people go, I'm a woman, I don't have to stay in the kitchen all day, and you're like, well, what if you want to? Or what if you're a guy who wants to be a chef and enjoys the doesn't want to ever leave the kitchen? You know, because they have, you know, they always you always hear the in the movies when the guys in the basement building something and they're like, come up, come up and get some dinner, you idiot! You're always down there, but he likes it down there. Right. What's wrong with liking the kitchen? There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I guess it's just the history thing. The thing that I think is difficult is so once women started to work. Um, outside of the home, mm -hmm. then they were still expected to do all the things that they had done when they weren't working outside the home. Mm -hmm. So then they had two jobs instead of one. Right. So you, I think, could be resentful of something, but you might be resentful of ironing, or you might be resentful, you know, you don't have to only be resentful of cooking. Mm -hmm. If you liked cooking, that was okay. Right. But um, if you know, there was always something, vacuuming or yeah. folding clothes or whatever. So if you both work, you should split the house stuff. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. If you don't do that, then you you have a lopsided relationship. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, then the museum moved to a real big space. Right. And that was a big deal. It was a big deal. And now it feels like a, the real museum it's supposed to be. Yeah, I feel that way. The first one was uh, training wheels. Yeah, I, I like to call it the incubator. Uh -huh. <laughs> but yeah, training wheels. Uh -huh. And uh, we really got to play out the entire concept of Southern Food and Beverage Museum mm -hmm. and not just have a, a really heavy dose of Louisiana, which is what we did with kind of nods at the other states. Right. And now, I think every state pretty much has its own its own section in the museum. Plus, the other thing we learned in our incubator is that we really needed to have a kitchen, a demo kitchen, because we would use a table with a burner on it to be our way of doing demos, mm. and we didn't even have running water. Mm. So um, you'd have to go to the bathroom and fill up a cup because the pitcher wouldn't fit under the sink. Mm. So you would have a, a pitcher with you, and then you'd fill it up with a cup, mm -hmm. and then you'd take the pitchers of water back to the table where you were giving the demo. Right. And then everybody had to take home the uh, dirty dishes and pans and things every night and 
clean them at home. Right. Man, so, that's tough. Right. That made you know you needed a kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Demos. Is that fun? Do you teach or do you just put set them up? No, sometimes I teach. Not. I used to do it a lot more. Uh-huh. I used to do camp. I used to do uh-huh. everything because we didn't have that much staff. Yeah. But now we have much more staff, and so I'm kind of on the on the side. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, that's good. And you just uh, got rid of your title. Yeah. So now I'm not the president and CEO. I'm the founder. Good title. We have a new president and CEO who has taken over the helm mm-hmm. of the museum, and I'm still involved, but I'm doing it as um, as a person who has the institutional memory because I know how we got started, everything we've already done, and all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then, in addition to the institutional memory, I also can go out and talk and speak and. Um, write books and do other things like that because now I'm freed up to do that which will help the museum in the long run. Mm-hmm. So you can you still have power over the CEO. Is founder still on the top? No, I, I think it's kind of we're on the side of each other. Alright, I just feel like you're Colonel Sanders and you have the 31 secret flavors or whatever. 31 seasonings, what is it? Herbs and spices. Yes, herbs. But shouldn't you keep that secret to yourself? No. That's like the person who goes to the grave with the recipe. Yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't be that person because Mm. you want to share. And I think that that's a much better approach to everything. The guy who built the Brooklyn Bridge got some kind of disease halfway through it so he had to go the city put him up in a house on the waterfront where he could see the bridge being built and he still had full control but he was in a wheelchair and his son had to keep building it but that reminds me of you you're in Chalmette and you're still you're still calling the shots but you're not at the you're not at the bridge well I still go to the bridge oh, okay. um, but I I feel that it isn't fair to the organization as I get older mm-hmm. to maybe just have the rug pulled out from under it if I get hit by a bus or something like that. So you want somebody else mm, to be in charge. I put too much into it to watch it go mm-hmm. down. I mean, obviously, if I were dead, I couldn't watch it, but um, it would that's what would happen and mm-hmm. I don't want that to happen I want it to be a solid um, healthy organization yeah. even without me mm-hmm. I, I can remember when we first started and we didn't have anything and you needed this or you needed that you needed an easel or you oh, needed yeah. this kind of hammer to put something on the wall or whatever and of course then we didn't have a hammer so then you have to go get a hammer have this and then you have to get that so we had to get things and we started accumulating them mm-hmm. and we did eventually come to a point where ah we need a screwdriver let me go get it from yeah. the back you know it takes a while but it does take a while and 
I would always think, if we were at the Louvre, mm. there would be one of these in the back. Yeah. <laughs> and so now that we are over 10 years old, we're in our second decade, I do feel that way, that we have something like that in mm. the back. Yeah. Which will allow us to move forward. Did you get a lot of... Um Oh, is it already time? Well, we can finish. Oh, all right. I'll just ask. Did you get a lot of, when you started, because now that you've hit the 10-year peak, did you get a lot of uh, people going, I don't know, it feels like a bad idea. I don't think you should do it. I don't know anything about food museums. Could go under. Could be a huge, you know, hit. Yes. There was actually one person in particular who used to be hired to do feasibility studies for new projects and in his opinion we were being fools mm. and that we should not be doing this and that there was not only not enough uh, backing for it and it was too new of a concept and whatever but that we were going to you know totally fail and it was going to be a big embarrassment and mm. all of that so I stopped talking to him. Wow. Because every time I talked to him, that's all I heard. Mm. I mean, he wouldn't stop. And he kept saying, I'm doing this for your own good. I'm mm. doing this for your own good. And here are my credentials. And so mm -hmm. what I'm saying is really true and all of that sort of thing. So, um, and it was almost as though he didn't say... I worry about you because I think it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. It was like this was his prediction, and he'd rather have his prediction be true than be wrong mm -hmm. and have us be successful. Right. And I just thought I can't, I can't listen to that. Yeah. All right. Well, it's up and running, and it's a success. And I don't think that guy knew your talent for getting stuff for free. That's probably true. <laughs> so, thanks, Mark. <laughs> this is Liz Williams. You've been listening to Tip of the Tongue, which can be found on the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation at netfab.org. And thanks for listening.